World War II was at its height. Forces were engaged in what was known as the Battle of the Bulge or the Christmas War of 1944. The fighting was fierce and the bitter cold. The Allied forces bombed and established control of the strategic area of which our own Mr. Tom Havens was a part of that. The commanding officer turned to several of his men and said, Sweep across that field and kill all German soldiers still entrenched in the snow. I want no prisoners. Absolutely none. One of the American soldiers selected gives his account of what happened next. As I walked, I immediately shot and killed two wounded and suffering soldiers. Then suddenly I approached a tall young guy with a broad Teutonic forehead. He was leaning against a tree. He wasn't wounded, simply exhausted. He had no food, no water, no comrades in sight, no ammunition. Fear, fatigue, defeat, loneliness overwhelmed him. He spoke English with a beautiful, wonderful world-type accent. When I noticed a little black Bible in his shirt pocket, he reminisced about that. He said, we started to talk about Jesus and salvation. Wouldn't you know it? That lanky German soldier turned out to be a born-again Christian who deeply loved the Lord. I gave him water from my canteen. I even gave him crackers. Then we prayed and read God's word together. And we wept together too. His voice began to tremble. His tears splashed down his cheeks. His voice began to reflect anguish. And he says this. It seems like only yesterday we stood a foot or so apart. As he read a psalm from his German Bible. Then I read Romans 12 from my King James translation. He showed me a black and white picture of his wife and daughter. The soldier took a deep breath. He said, you see, in those days I was a young man in my early 20s. I just graduated from a Christian college in Illinois. I hadn't had time to sort out my thoughts on the war. Maybe that's why I did what I did. I bid my German brother farewell. I took several steps away, then returned to the soldier. Romans 13, the thou shalt not kill commandment. The promises of eternal life, the prince of peace, the Sunday school distinction between killing and murder, the irrationality of war, all swirled in my mind. When the German soldier saw me returning, he bowed his head closed his eyes in a classic prayer posture. Then it happened. I said three crisp sentences that I still repeat once or twice a week when I have nightmares about the war. You're a Christian. I am too. See you later. In less than a second, I transformed the defenseless Christian soldier into a corpse. And you have... A tragic story. This is life as it is. This is not the movie. This is just as it is. And we understand that there are young men and women today that are engaged in such thoughts, such questions. It is a fact that we have had young men that have been raised here in our church They have been in war, Afghanistan, sent to Iraq. And I'll get word through the parents 
they've got questions. And they wonder, can God ever forgive them? When they're engaged in war, battle, maybe they're having to carry out perhaps maybe uh, immoral decrees, commands from a leader. Some of you perhaps are still dealing with this, something that you yourself personally involved in. I feel like it's important that in our day like today, in our patriotic uh, times, look at life as it is and bring the word of God to bear. It is a subject that I cannot exhaust and I probably won't even satisfy the questions that come from even this story uh, due to the time that we've got and the text that we're looking at, but I will touch and hopefully by the Lord's grace to speak to some of these issues. What is the role of government when it comes to a believer? How do you become a earthly citizen when you are a heavenly citizen? The text in which this man referred to, and I think the the text uh, that most people look to in addressing this question is Romans 13. I wish to turn our attention this morning to that same text, verses 1 through 7. There are other passages that speak to this, but this is the one that I wish to focus on. Uh, And give teaching from the Word of God to our perspective of human government. How do we relate to it? Um, What is our submission to it? I will not be able to talk about civil disobedience uh, in 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 its Totality, but uh, to say it's needed from time to time. And so let's go to Romans 13, read verses 1 through 7 together. And this being the word of God given to us, let's honor this by standing as we read it together. You read silently as I read aloud to you. I'll actually go to verse 8. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to God's wrath, but to also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. You may be seated. The point of this passage is very simple. Be subject to government. It is a controversial word uh, in any age. And it was just as much a controversy when Paul wrote this. If not more so a controversy. Uh, I don't know if you are up on your history here, but uh, Paul is writing this in the era of Roman emperors. Um, Let me give you a a brief 
little history here. Uh, Galuclea, some of you remember that name, uh, kind of stood out in Roman history uh, because of his depravity. Uh, ruled for just four short years before he was assassinated by his own. He was a murderer, had bouts of insanity. He would torture people and kill them while he would eat. He had a favorite horse, so much so favored that he named it as his counselor. He declared himself a god. He was followed up by Claudius, who ruled from 41 to 54. He also was a murderer. He was incestuous. He banished the Jews from Rome. In fact, just five years prior to this letter, he banished the Jews from Rome. And this is kind of the backdrop of Acts 18 when when uh, the letters written are addressed to Aquila and Priscilla. And uh, they are having to leave Rome because of the banishment. This would have been in the recent history of the reader of Romans 13, the original readers. The ruler at this time, as Paul writes this, was a man by the name of Nero. He ruled until 68. I came on at a young age of uh, 15, but he also uh, showed evil. He murdered his mother, his wife. Many believe he burned Rome, blamed the Christians for it. Not only did he burn Rome, he burned many believers, including Peter. And in just a short while after penning this letter, Paul himself would be executed under Nero's rule. So we need to understand that when Paul writes this, it was by no stretch of the imagination the ideal government. It had problems. And the believers, especially the believing Jews, knew this firsthand. But it is in this context that Paul writes Romans 13, verse 1. It lets us know That regardless of the character of the king, the character of the ruler, it does not change the fact that there is a duty to do for believers, and that is to submit to the human government. And because of the controversy that this caused, Paul, when he wrote this, made sure there were some good arguments in place. He said, this is why. You need to know this. You need to submit to the pilots of the day, the Herods of the day, the Neros of the day, and here is why. And so we're going to look at three main reasons as given in this passage as to why we submit to the authorities. Verse 1 states it very clearly. Be subject. Uh, Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, the readers would have heard Paul say, Hey, you know what? Present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And do not be conformed to this world. And so perhaps maybe the Roman reader would have said, Hey, there you go. That's all we need to know. Let's revolt. Let's Fight against the Roman system, the way of this world. So Paul tempers that speech and says, look, I'm not talking about a political system. I'm talking about a spiritual dynamic that's in your heart and your life, the way you think. And so he gives 13, he says, it's not, I'm encouraging, I do not encourage you to revolt. He says, obey. No doubt, uh, the, the powers to be in Rome would have gotten word of any command by Paul to uh, revolt. So Paul was making sure that this was not the case. And so he says, there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. So why do we submit to the human government? Because the basis of authority 
is from God. Simple. The basis of authority is from God. The fact of the matter is, is that when a fresh-faced 20-year-old young man pulls you over, you do stop because there is a light and you have all the emblems of authority. And though they may be young enough to be your child or your grandchild, you will call him, yes, sir. (laughs) No, sir. Or yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. And you may differ with his view. On whether or not you really did stop at that stop sign. And you can say, but officer, I looked both ways. I slowed. It seemed like a stop. (laughs) And you will accept the sentence that that person gives. Not because of how old that person is. Not because of the wisdom of that person. But because of the authority that this country has invested into this person. They represent the law. They enforce the law. And we will abide by that. Why? Because they do not just represent the law. You want to know what God's will is? In that moment in time, it is for God's will for you to stop at a stop sign. And it is God's will for you to pay a fine. Why? Because they... Represent God in this matter. That's what verse 1 and 2 states. They are extensions of God. They have been placed there by God. They exist because they're instituted by God. Oh, you get a great prime example of this in John chapter 19. In John chapter 19, Jesus teaches us as followers of him beautiful things about human government. Even though that's not the point of the passage. It's, it's, it's uh, supplemented. It's, not, it's a kind of a side issue. But John chapter 19. Jesus is brought bound before the powers to be. The Roman power in, in the name and face of Pilate. He has been beaten already. He has been unjustly accused. Unjustly tried by the religious leaders. And, and they're bringing before him. Pilate is interrogating him. Interviewing him. And Jesus makes this statement after Pilate says, don't you understand? I can let you go. You do not have to endure this anymore. And Jesus says in verse 11, John 19, you would have no authority over me at all unless it has been given you from above. Now, Jesus, he said, if you see me, you've seen the father. All right. He said, before Abraham was, I am. He said to a man, I forgive you of your sins. He has made claims of divinity. He is the son of God in flesh. And he says to this human. You have authority over me. It's been granted by God the father. What a humbling thing for Jesus to do. But how much more if Jesus our master does that. How much more are we to be sitting underneath law and place ourselves there every day? Jesus also taught us in that moment in time about the role of state and religion, state and worship with God. In that same passage, or actually in in just a little bit before that, John chapter 18, uh, he makes the statement in verse 36. He says, In the same interview with Pilate, he says, 
my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. In that moment in time, Jesus taught us that as followers of Jesus Christ, we do not coerce other people to follow Jesus Christ. That people come and other passages by faith. Listen, you need to know that if this passage was not there, if the teachings of salvation comes by faith alone, then America could have very well been something like you see in Iran. Where out of the bed of Christianity comes tolerance. Understanding that some things are not done by force. And I would challenge you who study history to look at where tolerance has been a trademark in a society many times, more times than not, you will find that in the fertile underpinnings of that nation was Christianity. Christianity also has done some great harm and evil, but it's only because it became warped and astray from the biblical idea. The basis of the authority, getting back to the same, the main point, the basis of authority is from God. Now, we complain today because government's getting bigger. I don't like government getting bigger. I don't wake up thinking, how can I make government more uh, in uh, <laughs> exerting its will upon me so that I must do certain things and not do certain things? I, I don't have that ideal, but I believe according to the Word of God, there's two options in America if America continues in survival. One is a wholesale change of the people in submission to God that is done voluntarily by the people to God. The other option, and the more probable option, is that government will get bigger and bigger and bigger. Why? Because people will not be able to govern themselves. And where there's a lack of governing self, government of the country must step in. I challenge these that are here today. I think Deputy Campbell probably spends much of his day dealing with the sins of people. What would he be doing? If people weren't hurting one another, if people were not or were paying their dues, paying their taxes, <laughs> I don't know what you'd be doing. We'd have to have a different job for you. But it is a fact of the matter that government exists because of the sins of people. There must be a government because man can cannot govern themselves. You see this in Genesis chapter 9 verse 6. You ever wonder where does government come from? You see the seed of it in Genesis chapter 9 verse 6. Uh, what has happened according to the word of God is, is there has been uh, widespread sin in the, the whole human race. Uh, the flood occurs in Genesis chapter 9. And then we have Noah coming out and a whole new society is starting. And God is saying, let me give you some things that wasn't given before. Genesis chapter 9 verse 5 and 6 says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it from man, from this fellow man. I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And in this passage, there was invested within mankind the ability to punish crime at this point in time. Why? Because he saw that man needed government. Needed government. And you see the seed of it. I have a, a one-year-old and 
uh, one and a half year old. And he lives a life with huge government. I mean, huge government. Um, it's gotten to the point now where in the high chair that he sits in and, and uh, uh, partakes with the family meal together with us, there must be government. There must be physical government, physical restraint around his midsection. Why? He has no restraint. He thinks that it is great fun to stand in the high chair while eating. And it makes sense if you think about it. I mean, you get looked down at everyone else. There's a much better vantage to throw food if you're standing. And for once, you get to be like a grown-up. Be as tall as a grown-up. But he has no sense of the danger. He is governing himself by his impulses and desires without any thoughts of safety. So, big brother comes in. <laughs> big government. We call him big daddy at our house. He comes in and says, son, you're going to sit down. If you don't obey, we're going to put a seatbelt on you. And there you sit. There you sit. He endures much government. Why? Because he cannot govern himself. And so, too, for America, if we continue to exhibit the traits of failing to control ourselves, a, a continued following of our impulse and desires without any thought of others, and ourselves, yes, big government must be. And the fact of the matter is, the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that as time goes on, men will grow worse and worse. And so, unless there is a major movement of the people to follow God, get used to big government. So that's the case. Why? Because... There must be a government to curb sinful desires. The Christian teaching is, is that man is depraved, therefore there needs to be government. Now, let's go on and, and read. There are some other passages that speak to the same issue. Daniel chapter 2, verse 20, 21. Daniel says in a prayer to God, he says, God, you change times and seasons. You remove kings and set up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Psalm 75, verse 6 and 7. For not from the east or from the west, not from the wilderness, comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Proverbs 21, verse 12. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. We have the honor of Mike Chalt being here. And he is mayor because God has lifted him up to be mayor. We have Sheriff Harrison here, or his representative here, because God has lifted him up to be the sheriff of this day. We have our councilman here, Robertson. He is here because God has lifted him up to be uh, a council member. We have uh, Governor Purdue, who is there because God has lifted, him up, lifted her up to be the governor. We have President Barack Obama there because God has lifted him up to be there. We have had other presidents in the past because God has lifted them up to be there at that time. The fact of the matter is God is in control of who has authority. That's nothing to do with the character of the person. It's just something of God's doing. And this has been the case throughout history whether they have worshipped God or they have disdained God. God has allowed them there for His purposes. And so they represent God. Now what is the role of, of government? What is the role of authority? 
This is the next reason why we submit to God. You see this in verse 3 and 4. He says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on uh, the wrongdoer. To sum it up and keep it simple, what's the role of government? Well, the role of authority is for good. Simple, as simple as you want to get. What is your role as leaders? It is to encourage good and to discourage evil. It's just as simple as that. It gets complicated when we're trying to figure out what's good and what's evil. It says, but that's it. Encourage good, discourage evil. Now, you and I know that there are governments that come in and they don't do this. Sometimes there are uh, corruption that comes in. And that's why corruption is so bad. is because it encourages evil and discourages good. Because of the greed of an individual. And it allows it. It, it becomes indefinite. Uh, uh, kind of a, a sickness that goes throughout. And starts with the leader. But this is God's intention for government at its best. Why is that important? Let me just bring to you a case. We don't have to go too far. We can just go down south a little ways to another country in Mexico. Um, they are continuing to deal with problems. As a few years ago, this story came out in Laredo, Texas, or, or across the border to Nuevo Laredo, Mexico. You see the same in Juarez and other places. The town lost its civil authority and is ruled by gangs. Alejandro Dominguez was the only person brave enough to be police chief. Hours after he took office, assailants riddled his body with dozens of bullets in the city, racked by a turf battle between Mexico's two main drug gangs. The streets were virtually empty Thursday, a day after the killing, with only a handful of federal police armed with rifles and automatic weapons. We're defenseless, attorney Zorino Medrano said at City Hall. It's obvious that the criminals are better organized than the authorities. They sent the National Army, and even they weren't respected. Who else can we ask for help? That's a small snapshot of what this world would be without God's common grace of civil authority. What would you do if you called 911 and there was no answer? What would you do if there was no police, no firemen, no National Guard? You get this picture in your eyes? Read verse 4 again. He, that civil authority, is God's servant for your good. Do you understand? You say, Amen. Thank you, God, for government. It is a huge difference. And so he says, look, this is a very simple thing. Obey it. Obey it. And you don't have to fear it. You want to drive in peace even though there is a blue light in your rearview mirror? You obey the laws. And the question will be, I wonder who he's going to pull over. Not, oh my, he got me. And so, it is the objective, it is the purpose, the role of authority is to encourage good and discourage evil. But let me just bring out something here. Is something applied in this passage. You notice verse 4 and 5 again, or verse 3 and 4. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. How does government know 
what is good conduct and what is bad. It's implied in the statement. They're to encourage good, discourage evil. You see this again, verse 3, then do what is good. Verse 4, God's servant is for your good, but if you do wrong. It is implied within this command, this statement, a universal law. He says there is a sense of right and wrong that is universal. In every society, there will be a sense of right and wrong. They they may vary in its details, but there is an understanding that something is right and something is wrong. I would just present to you that we could not have a pluralistic society, a pluralistic government, if there was not. An absolute sense of a universal right and wrong. Now I know that is unpopular to say. It is very uh, hip. Is the thing to say that there are no absolutes. But I think that our existence as a country differs with that in experience. How do you explain people from all nations, different religions, existing In a society, an agreed upon human government. Unless there was an idea and understanding that it is wrong to have my property stolen. And there needs to be a law to discourage that. And encourage honesty. You see, Paul was had already stated in the same book, Romans chapter 2. Verse 14 and 15, he says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. In other words, he says, look, it is understanding that there is something written in in mankind of a moral sense, of a right and a wrong. He says that speaks to what God has placed in mankind's heart. It's kind of... What Paul is bringing out in Romans 2 is that this moral sense is to point to Christ, ultimately. It's kind of like if you were a sailor, you didn't have the technology, a lot of folks have today in sailing, but you still went by telescope, and you had an astronomical telescope, one that you looked at stars with, and instead you're trying to look at ships, you think, man... (laughs) Something's not not right. But I get a sense there's something out there. I just can't quite focus it. Why? Because that, that telescope was meant to look at the stars. We have a moral sense in our heart that gives us a vague idea of some of the right and wrong. But it's meant for us to see the Christ that's behind this moral law. Laws represent the ideals of a society. The ideals of a society. There is a morality behind every law. There is a morality behind every law. This is something we need to know and we need to be aware of. And we must choose those laws that represent good and discourage evil. Now, Paul had a king. He had no choosing of the matter. A king was appointed. He obeyed. You and I in America, things are a little bit different. 
We, we choose our government. We do it two ways. One, we choose by the people to have the principle of the law in the Constitution, to have that foundation. Let me re- read to you the beginning lines of the Constitution. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our prosperity. You get what they're saying? We, as the people of the United States, we want to have a way to encourage good and discourage evil. Establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain, establish this constitution for the United States of America. We, as as a people, as citizens of this country, we submit to that. We submit to that being the rule of law. This is how we're going to live, Okay. And then we also choose those leaders. We choose in a, in a democratic constitutional republic. Popular opinion, opinion polls are not the policy makers. The leaders are. And we have voted these leaders in. And so let me ask you, because we choose our own leaders, does that mean that God didn't lift them up? No. God is still the one lifting them up. And so let me just take you to the third reason. Verses 5 through 8. He says, Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed is owed a third reason we submit to the human government is because of conscience sake the conscience of authority is to be good we are to have good consciences why because they represent god this is that that incident where you're going down the road and you're worried about whether a policeman is getting you or not you don't have to have that tyranny of fear if you're doing good so for this reason, you obey the human government. Now, every once in a while, obeying human government can get you in trouble with conscience sake. That was the case of this young man that I read. There must be a time and place for civil disobedience. When you... Knowing the word of God, knowing the law of God that's been imprinted upon your heart, but knowing the word of God has been revealed even more clearly, will see a command, a prohibition that flies in the face of who God is. It is upon you to civilly disobey as citizens of a higher kingdom, of a heavenly kingdom. This was the case with Daniel. Who the prohibition was given. You are not to pray to anyone else or anything else except to the human ruler. What did Daniel do? He did as he always did. Three times a day. He got by the window and prayed in direct opposition to the human law. Because he served God. And the attitude is, do what you will. We will disobey. That was the attitude of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the same thing when they were commanded to bow down. Uh, before this idol. And their thought was. Is we will not do this king. 
And if you so desire, you can throw us in the fire. We would rather obey God. But we believe God can rescue us. But even not, let it be known, we serve God. This was the attitude uh, in, the, in the early church's day of, of Peter and the disciples. In Acts chapter 4, verse 18 and 19, alluding to the passage we looked at last week, they were brought before the, the, the human authorities and they were charged not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus Christ. In Acts 4, 18, verse 19, Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. In other words, that's going to be your problem and it may be my problem. But it's not going to be my problem with God. That is why it is important for us to look clearly at this lens that God's been given to us to say, this is what we want to live for. These are the ideals we shoot for. Tolerance is a part of it because we can't force people to follow Christ. But it is to be a fertile bed where people can have a choice. Of liberty. To choose whether to follow Jesus Christ or not. It is something we must ensure that liberty to do so. Now. Why is it important for me to obey God? Why is it important for me to obey the police officer? Are the bills that are going out passed into laws? Why is that important? Let me just share with you. You know, we think about this day and age when, when things may work against us as followers of Jesus Christ. And we may have to make a stand against human government and for Christ and pay a price for it. And we think about these. Other believers all over the world are doing that. We're kind of in this bubble where that doesn't happen. It's a Disneyland spirituality. Most people, that's not the case. There's a price they pay. And a lot of times it's with the human government. And we think, what would I do? Let me tell you. There will probably be a day and time where a human government of America will be in odds with following Jesus Christ. Right now, at this point, it's worked out nicely. (laughs) Following Jesus can also make you a good citizen of America. But it could come to the point where that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. What do we do then? Let me just say that the best practice for civil disobedience is civil obedience. What do I mean by that? Here's, here's the point. Paul's given us a lot of reasons why we, we obey the government. But there's one other one. And that is to deny ourselves. I'm going to be a little honest here, transparent. Uh, it's kind of scary. Because there is a deputy here. The first service afterwards, I, I pled for mercy. Um, but uh, there are some times... When I, I may speed, and I will just stay under the radar, literally, you know, just kind of where they won't get you, but you know you're not doing the speed limit. And the main reason I do that is because I'm late. And I'm trying to get somewhere on time so that I'll look good and won't look bad. And I will sacrifice obeying a speed limit to ensure that I look good and on time. But I read the Bible and it says that that speed limit 
is an extension of the rule of God. So let me state even more clearly what I'm doing. I am rejecting the rule of God as displayed in a human authority, a law that is not in conflict with the word of God, not in conflict with the character of God, so that I will look good. What's my problem? Yeah, don't make me say it, all right? (laughs) First service came in for me. I didn't have to say it. Pride. Pride. I just bring these examples out. There are numerous examples, whether it's paying or taxes, all kinds of laws. The speed, the uh, seatbelt law. I pick on folks here, all right? But you know, that's not been so long. Many of us has been driving for a while. We remember the day and age we didn't have to wear seatbelts. Remember, you know, stacking up three kids in the back seat, putting them on the floorboard, putting them on the back, you know, laying them all out. Get a lot of kids in that way. We we'll would be looking at having to get a minivan or suburban or something like that nowadays. You know, and we get in there and think, well, I don't want to wear the seatbelt. Why? I just don't like it. I don't like, I don't, it's just a principle. I don't like government telling me what to do. I mean, it's big enough. They have to tell me to put a belt on for crying out loud. I'm just not comfortable. I feel restrained. There's a problem with pride. It is a sin. Do you understand this? When the Bible says that it is an extension of the law, and the only fact of the matter is, you say it's on the principle of the thing. What's the principle? The principle is your civil liberties. And I get from this passage that Paul is not really concerned about your civil liberties. You know what it seems he's more concerned with? Whether you deny yourself and take up the cross. Do you understand that a simple thing of putting a seatbelt on is like, hey, you know what? I don't like doing this. I don't like someone having to tell me what to do like I'm a big baby. But you know what? It's an opportunity for me to deny myself and take up this cross. And if we cannot obey God in this matter, in this matter where the law is not in conflict with the word of God, what makes us think that we will deny ourselves? When we're in conflict with the law of God and put our very lives at stake, we are fooling ourselves and being hypocrites. We need to understand the point of the law. It is an opportunity for us to worship God and stop worshiping ourselves. I've been harsh, but I want you to understand I've been equally harsh on myself. All right, we're all enduring this together. But notice the last verse here. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. In other words, don't be a burden on society because of your contrary spirit, your rebellious attitude. Instead, let let your presence be a blessing to society. The fact of the matter is that we're having to pay more to incarcerate individuals than to educate individuals in America. And I don't really have much hope of that changing. As I said, as government gets bigger, as mankind drops away from being selfless and selfish, 
loving themselves versus loving others. It is inevitable that these things will happen and we will pay the price and taxes and other things to take care of the lack of self-government among ourselves as a society. But it's still better than other places. It's still so much better than other places. That's our state. So, followers of Christ, members of Green Pines, don't be a burden on society. Don't make the sheriff deputy come to your house. Don't cause a headache for the mayor. What if, what if towns sought the presence of churches and said, we wish we had more churches? Because we found that where churches exist, our community gets blessed. We don't have to raise taxes in some of these areas because the churches are doing it. What if? Instead of fighting churches, because they're a drain on that society. They don't pay their taxes. They just sit there. They don't come back and contribute. It says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. I think it's fascinating. Something you need to point out here that he is talking to the church in relationship to the human government. Our love for one another is not just something that's kept within the followers of Jesus Christ, but there is a love that is to extend it out. Does Nightdale know that Green Pines love them? Does your neighborhood know that you love them? Does the mayor and the council members know that you love them? We have been blessed. Uh, I brought this out in the first service with, with Elaine Homequest. Um, I shared this on Wednesday night. She wasn't here, but I got to do it this morning. She was named the um, um, Citizen of the Year for the town of Nightdale. I rejoiced in that. Praise God. She is lifting up the name of Christ. She's lifting up the name of, of Green Pines by her service and willingness to help out with the town. I thought to myself, I wonder what I need to do to be citizen of the year. Wouldn't it be something if every year the citizen of the year was a follower of Christ? Please tell me, who has a greater argument for them to be citizen of the year? Is it not the follower of Christ that in their very service to the town, they're worshiping God? Why can't it be? Why can't it be? And sadly enough, I'm afraid the biggest answer is because of selfishness. This is a worship problem. Do you understand it's a worship problem? It is about living for God and not for ourselves. And so I want to invite you to obey the law. <laughs> I invite you to obey the law. Whether you agree with it or not, whether you think it's intrusive or not, let the main standard be the word of God by which is judged good and evil. And let that be the standard. And if it doesn't conflict with that, to do your best at it.
and welcome to worship of Christ. Let's pray.